Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce the panel here today to discuss the power of critical thinking. So as our moderator, we have Roy Eisenhardt, who is a professor of law at UC Berkeley um, and has done many, many of these for the Commonwealth Club over the years. Uh, and we also have Leland Faust, who is a former chairman, CSI Capital Management, and the author of A Capitalist Lament, How Wall Street is Fleecing You and Ruining America. He didn't pull any punches in his title. <laughs> and Richard Kahn, managing partner of Innovate Partners, international attorney, Russia expert, board member of International Crisis Group, advisor to chess champion Magnus Carlsen, and the author of The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. Richard and I discovered we have nearly repeated each other's lives here. I mean, him about 10 years after mine, but, but uh, went to the same college, studied the same things, had the same professors, went to the same places, ended up in New York City doing legal stuff. Older brother. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, without further ado, Roy, thank you very much for leading the discussion tonight. Well, thank you, George. Um, I on everybody here? Okay, good, because I can't. I'm, my head is completely stuffed, so I'm going to read lips the whole night. Um, this is a fascinating topic, I think, and the, the axis of it, both vertically and horizontally, is deep and wide. Um, and what we're going to do is hopefully get some um, insights into what we intuitively know is lacking in much of our discourse, um, not just today, uh, but probably forever back in time. So I thought a good place to start to get both you and uh, Richard, you and Leland going is an experience that each of you have had that's demonstrated the use or the non-use of, a, of critical thinking in a large, um, large problem-solving context. And Richard, I'll start with you because I heard in your uh, introduction that you were a Russia expert, so I'm going to channel your answer perhaps into something in that range of your experience. Thanks so much, Roy, and uh, sure. uh, thanks for doing this, incidentally. And George, thanks for having us here. Uh, uh, there are other people I want to thank, but I'll get to that a little bit later. The story that I guess I would relate to <clears throat> demonstrates probably more than anything my own lack of critical thinking and lack of understanding, which, as my wife can tell you, is a common theme in my life. Uh, this demonstrates, uh, in my view, the use of assumptions and how little we understand about other cultures and how other people think. Uh, it is a true story, uh, and I haven't told it. It's been long enough. I think I can. Uh, back in 93, uh, 1993, uh, I was uh, doing a lot of work with Yeltsin's team in Russia and had, was living there for quite a while. And uh, I was invited to ask by the, uh, got a call from the uh, deputy mayor of Moscow, a guy named Orjan Nikitse, who uh, <clears throat> subsequently they had like three assassination attempts on this guy because he was running all the casino business and the hotels for Moscow. And he, his team passed along to me that they wanted me to, to come to a luncheon, host a luncheon, and have a couple of other people attend from the Western community who were leaders of the community and who also spoke fluent Russian uh, so that we could talk about how to attract capital to Moscow. That was a theme. 
And as you may remember, back in those days, we were all friendly with Russia and we were trying to help them integrate into the West. So I said, sure, uh, not understanding anything as usual. And so I show up at this lunch with the head of Citibank uh, for Russia and the guy who ran a big telecom company. And the first thing that uh, Orchnikitsa says to me, you know, as we're sitting at one of these formal tables across from one another, after maybe a minute of formality, was Moscow wants 25%, excuse me, uh, 50% of every deal that we do in, uh, uh, in Russia, meaning... Uh, as I started to pull it together in my mind, he had in his, in his mind that by talking to the three of us that he could do a deal with the West and that that would bind anyone else in the West doing business. Yeah. And, the, and so the first thing that sort of light bulb that goes on is, okay, <clears throat> this in, from his frame of reference, being of the Soviet generation, you went to Moscow to do deals. You dealt, dealt with the government. There was no free market concept. So he had no clue that we're sitting there just as, yeah. you know, guys from our specific companies and have obviously no authority whatsoever. <clears throat> so I thought I gave a diplomatic answer, which was we'd be delighted to see Moscow participate in every deal. The way we do it, though, in the West is by this thing called taxation. And so what we can all do for you is work with Moscow to help set up a tax structure so you can participate. And I, and I went through this little song and dance of how we're more comfortable having you as a government playing the role of a referee in a soccer game rather than being on our team. And he politely listened to this thing for three or four minutes, at which point I stopped to get his reaction. He looked at me and he said, how about 25%? <laughs> and... What that told me as I thought about it was, okay, nobody, he thinks nobody is as naive as I am as to actually be genuinely negotiating this thing. And so his immediate reaction was he puts himself in my mind and thinks, okay, this is what I would do. Uh, And so to me, it's one of countless examples I could give you in terms of being in situations where you think you're utilizing your critical thinking, but you're actually making assumptions about how other people Thanks. So with that, I'll pass the ball to you, Leland, to give something perhaps a bit more, uh, more normal. Well, at least mine will be domestic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, well, one incident that I was involved with a few years ago, the, which I think demonstrates a lot of sort of wishful thinking, meaning you're hoping for the, the, what you think is reality, and it's not. And therefore, it's going to happen. And of course, the question is, what's reality? And uh, I owe this definition to a quote one of my cousins added to her uh, emails tagline, which she sends me every one. It says, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, is still there. (laughs) And uh, that works. Anyway, um, People just choosing to disregard what would seem to be critical analysis, even when other people in a similar circumstance have said it is. So, a number of years ago, the California uh, pension fund, the CalPERS, the biggest pension fund in America, probably the world, decided, and I believe right and when you read my book, you'll see why, decided they were going to stop investing in hedge funds, that it wasn't paying off at all. 
Just as they were doing that, the city of San Francisco announces that they're going to, for the first time, go into hedge funds. So I was rather uh, stunned as a uh, taxpayer in San Francisco and also as the, uh, to disclose all conflicts, as the husband of a San Francisco uh, pensioner. And uh, so I contacted members of the, uh, all the members of the board, pension board, and gave them all the facts and figures. And I also sent them to the uh, administrator, the paid administrator of the fund. Now, at that time, I did not know his salary. Uh, as you're going to see, it's going to come relevant. Uh, I have subsequently learned that he's the highest paid employee in the city of San Francisco. He makes about $500,000 a year. So I said, I said, help me. I've given you all these statistics, you know, all kinds of them, study after study after study. And he, I said, what don't I understand? What's wrong with my figures? He said, I don't have any problem with your figures. He said, but... We can pick the good hedge funds. So I said, really? I said, if you could do that, whatever your salary is, I'll pay you 10 times as much to come work for me. (laughs) And so, you know, the jury might still be out, but after the first uh, year and a half, uh, the hedge funds were trailing the other types of investments, which the uh, pension funds in San Francisco do. So again, this is in, this is wishful thinking, not critical thinking, and it, it really has a significant impact because it means one of two things are going to happen: either the pensioners are going to get less, or the taxpayers are going to pay more, and there is no third way. What was his incentive to disbelieve the facts that you gave him? The disincentive was that the pension fund didn't have enough money in it to completely fund the pensions. So by earning a higher rate of return, they were hoping they could catch up and not have a shortfall sometime in the future. So instead of saying, these are not the real numbers, but we're going to earn 5% of our money, we're going to go for 8 or 9, if we can get that, then we won't have the shortfall. Failing to do the critical thinking that risk and return are correlated... The fact he might not get eight or nine. Yeah. The, um, because that raises, I mean, Richard, you've inserted the term assumption into our dialogue here, and that's a really important part of it. I remember there was an author, some of you may remember, Douglas Adams, who he mainly wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide, The Galaxy, and things like that. But he, he had one great phrase. He says, the most dangerous assumptions are the ones we don't know we're making. And it's always stuck with me because in both of your examples, there were assumptions that they didn't even realize they were making. And you cannot critically think if you don't know what's attacking you in your process. Leland, you brought up the term knowing what's real, what what's reality and so forth. And I think that also is an interesting concept. And Richard, when I was reading your book, <clears throat> one of the discussions that intrigued me was your discussion of Plato's cave. And our, many of you probably have read that in your philosophy classes <coughs> and so forth. And I think it's worth revisiting that uh, s- story, I'll call it, because it really pertains to our discussion tonight. Yeah, it's it's a useful <clears throat> sort of overview of what I wrote about. Yeah. And uh, Plato's Cave is basically tells a tale of people who are chained to a bench for their entire lives. 
unable <clears throat> to turn around and <clears throat> see that the shadows that they're observing on the wall in front of them and the only reality that they can see in their lives is actually merely the reflection of, uh, uh, from a fire burning brightly behind them, which is putting up shadows of people who are living, going about their lives. And so it's a, it provides a metaphor for the idea that the truth that we assume we have in our lives uh, may in fact be merely shadows, that we're not thinking about what really is going on and we're simply making the assumption that what is before us is all there is. And I use that in the book to, ta to begin the discussion of the place of um, whether it's wishful thinking or I do use the term delusional, which I apologize for, the concept of people embracing the supernatural, um, notwithstanding our physical place in the universe and our knowledge about that, as well as our own psychological makeups, which lead us to want to embrace a supernatural being in order to deal with our own fears and desires. So I, I do think it's a, a useful tool to uh, recognize that all of us have to question whether what we're seeing and thinking is simply a truth that's been provided to us by our parents or grandparents, or whether it is in fact a reality. Yeah. And also how it affects our lives if we don't question that. Yeah. And that's what you were talking about before, Leland, about <clears throat> finding reality, you know, and how many people attended my inauguration. You know, well, we can all find our own reality of what the right answer is. And you, we realize how much we talk by each other in, <clears throat> in trying to overwhelm <coughs> the other side with facts because they have different set of facts. Which takes me, Leland, to sports, which is an area that you, um, at least as an avocation, operate in quite often. And give us some examples of um, occasions that you've encountered there where the challenge between the wishful thinking of people involved in sports and the critical thinking of people who are observing it maybe don't meet. Well, I think there's a, a huge... Uh, number of cases that uh, we could find or examples. I mean, a couple that I think stand stand out to me. Uh, one is certainly the obsession over the drafts in uh, in the, 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 all sports. All sports. Yeah. Uh, um, th this is somehow going to equalize the playing field. The fans have bought into this as if it is a reality, and it's, in my view, and I think it can be demonstrated statistically and with probabilities that have been worked out, completely uh, wishful thinking and hopeful thinking. Uh, uh, a number of years ago, I represented a team owner, and I asked him the same kind of question. How do you spend, this was before they had the salary cap in the, for rookies in the NBA, the basketball. I said, how can you owners justify drafting college players who've never played against the real professionals and paying them because they're the super high draft picks more than even many of the all-stars make. And he said, 
his response was kind of interesting. He said, well, we both, we all have two delusions. I said, really, what are they? He said, number one, we all delude ourselves that we're just one player from having the championship team. And he said, and two, we all delude ourselves that we can pick them based on how they played in college. And it just isn't true. And the, the, the proof of that for the last 32 years in the NBA, someone did a study of how many of the top four draft picks, so that's 128, no, pardon me, top four for 32, yes, 128 players, pardon me, um, played on a championship team by those who drafted them. And the answer is that of the 128 players that were going to change the franchises, three played on championship teams. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's an illusion. A, another one which my wife is going to kill me for mentioning <laughs> is the closer in baseball. Yeah. People get all excited about the closer coming in to save the game. Well, uh, I don't have time to go into the details now, but if you look at the statistics on the closers, they don't have they have almost no influence on the game statistically. And uh, a couple of quick examples. I believe the greatest closer in the history of baseball was a Yankee named Mariano Rivera. He was the best pitcher to ever close, has all the records, and I think he was the best closer. In the five years since he's been retired, the Yankees' close percentage is higher. Um, so that pretty much tells it, and I could quote a lot of it, but there are a couple of quick sports examples. No, that's, I mean, it's interesting to me that what you're saying is that industry basically rejects critical thinking in their analysis and, and goes with custom and what seems safe to them. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, there, there are certain things that have been suggested for, certainly that I've seen in, in baseball and football that you know, statistically would improve your chances of winning over the season a lot, and no one will do them because they're afraid if they do and it doesn't work, they'll get fired. That's my it's, it's the old, you know, what they said, you know, 40 years ago, no purchasing agent ever got fired for buying an IBM machine. <laughs> well, it's sort of the, the same kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And uh, so I think yeah, I think that's part of it. I think that the, but I think some of it is, is in fact, you know, wishful thinking that, you know, our one guy will save us or I can identify, you know, we can hire a manager who can identify the secret sauce. Right, right. And it's not quite, it's not quite that simple. So you, you see that, you know, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. I've got an idea, by the way, for a movie, if we could get Brad Pitt and maybe yeah. do something involving right. baseball. About uh, money, having to do money ball or something. Maybe something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which takes me to chess, uh, because you've worked with Gary Kasparov, right? I have. How, how do you see his thinking style working in this anti-intellectual world that we live in? You know, it's interesting you start with Gary, because, uh, you know, I thought about Gary at various points when I wrote the book, as well as other people whom I admire for their intelligence, yet have uh, have some religious leanings or spiritual side to them, because it it always struck me that uh, you know what Dawkins and Hitchens did in their writings, w- which were quite hostile towards people who embrace religion, didn't quite capture the way I think of it, which is more of a we're all in this together, dealing with our psychological needs to mm-hmm. address our 
our concerns yeah. in life and fears in particular. Mm-hmm. And Gary, you know, he does have a uh, side to him that is spiritual. Um, he, he identifies with the Jewish faith in particular, although that's more, you know, in part more cultural, but there is an element yeah. there. Gary, uh, as well as uh, Karpov, whom I ran with, you know, for the, um, for the FIDE leadership positions, uh, as well as Magnus, whom I still have uh, uh, dealings with, and, uh, you know, another great guy. They all share the ability, obviously, to think in a logical, organized manner. Um, they all, I think, share a certain humility that comes from seeing how difficult it is to do that and seeing how many mistakes they make, even with all the work they put into mm-hmm. it. Um, and uh, But they all embrace it. I uh, uh, embrace critical thinking, yeah. that is, and they, they honor that. They, uh, chess players at that level honor the concept of truth, meaning, as they would probably express it, and, and again, I'm not nearly at their level, but the way they talk about it is they're looking for the truth in a position, trying to figure it out. And, you know, I mean, I see a buddy, Craig Hilbert over here nodding his head, who's a very strong speed player. And you are, as you play more chess, uh, you're, you're just trying to figure it out. It's not so much that you're trying to win. It's almost a mixture of art and science. You're actually trying to get to the heart of the reality of a position you're mm-hmm. analyzing and then trying to control your mind and, and concentrate to be able to, to do that, which is a much harder thing to do than most of us realize we, we generally live with the illusion that we're extremely smart and that humanity is just fabulous in every possible way. Well, if you play chess, you will quickly realize how, how foolish and stupid we all are. It's extremely yeah. difficult <laughs> to you know, concentrate even for a couple moves and look ahead and the greatest grandmasters like Gary make mistakes. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so yeah, Gary is an interesting example of being able to sort of hold on to uh, some spirituality uh, but at the same time be a, a critical thinker in other areas. Well, we're using this term as though it has a monolithic <laughs> meeting, mm-hmm. meaning. Um, maybe we ought to talk about a little bit what we mean by critical thinking, and a sub-part of that for me is whether it's something that you acquire or it can be taught or, or both. Um, so... Either one of you, what when you talk, when you say you need to learn critical thinking skills, what do you mean? Well, I think the closest I can do it in a few words is sort of objective analysis and evaluation based on facts. That's about as close as I can come in a few words. That you're trying, you're trying, and it's excruciatingly difficult not to be biased. So you start out with trying to be objective. You're trying to you know, analyze, get you know, get from point the proverbial point A to point B, and it's not necessarily clear at all what the route should be. And so, and, I th- and, and then you know, evaluate it, again, based on reality, not based on what you think. You can't, you know, the obvious, you can't, send a rocket to the moon and put it in orbit if you have the wrong uh, fact of what how strong gravity is. Yeah. And you can't wish that away. And I think that applies in you know, human things too. You can't you know, wish that every voter who goes into a voting 
booth is going to have rationally analyzed the candidates and say, you know, whose policies really will make us richer, safer, whatever. You say, who do I feel closest to? So that's no longer uh, critical thinking then. And I think it's so hard to do it. So that's the best I can do. Richard, what do you think? I could could add. I mean, I agree with how you're describing it. I I would also add the dimension that to me, you know, a sort of, if, if you will, a contrast of critical thinking that might illuminate what it is, is, you know, if, if, if one embraces tribalism and identity, uh, whether it's from the religious context or a political one, and, and, and one doesn't think about positions. In other words, if you're able to go through, you know, a, a series of positions and say, you know, here's X, here's Y, and I support this, but uh, I don't support that, but your view changes based on identity politics if suddenly the X is a blue and the Y is a red or vice versa. Uh, that, to me, you know, smacks of lack of, of critical thinking. And that comes out, in, as I write in the book, more uh, clearly than in most areas if one simply takes a view that, look, I'm tied with this faith or that or I have a certain label on me that makes me a better person than you or gives me reason to treat you badly or uh, to, in some cases, do you bodily injury. Uh, that, to me, is, is yet another example of a choice uh, to embrace something other than critical thinking, which is uh, uh, in part wishful uh, thinking or delusional thinking. And uh, that, to me, is, uh, is one way to think of the antithesis of what critical thinking is. Mm-hmm. How do we solve the problem of facts? Because, as you know, the old saying, you, you're entitled to your opinions, but not your own set of facts. But it strikes me that going back to Plato's cave, which is why I wanted to talk about that, that what we may, we may be sitting here thinking that each of us is critically thinking, but we're operating on different assumptions, unconscious biases. So the notion of a pure concept of the facts, it strikes me as a bit of a, existential problem well some i would uh, sometimes that's clearly going to be the case you know but sometimes i think it's not and especially in an area where it's been near and dear to me just because i grew up with a i guess a facility for it which is math and arithmetic and you know that type of thing and so often we find people trying to analyze a situation or a policy and the numerical facts are just totally off base and the critical thinking might get us there to just establish what might be a fact or a non-fact. And there was a recent um, letter to the editor in the Chronicle, which I think to me illustrated this problem with something which clearly in my mind isn't a fact. And the letter was probably the 200th letter in the last three years that they've published about the border wall that Trump wants to build and increase. And unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, for making the case in this instance, the author of the letter said something like, and I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to be close enough. He said, it's either I calculated or I believe that the cost per American in building this wall is $4,000. Well, 
$4,000 times 330 million Americans is $1.3 trillion. So it's off by at least a factor of 100. Now, we can talk about what the policy should be, but we can't critically think about it if the facts are off right. by a factor like that. All right. That's my point. That's the, that's the vulnerability. I don't think too many people will say, well, I don't like critical thinking. It's too much work. Uh, I think most of us think we are critically thinking, but the fact is we are allowing it to be persuaded by preconceptions, unconscious biases, assumptions about how much a border wall costs. And so it, it strikes me that that's where I find trouble, for example, in teaching. As was said in the introduction, I teach at the law school, and one of the things you teach in law schools like it or not, is critical thinking. And I have trouble figuring out how to take students from the step of knowing what something says and being able to regurgitate back to me what I've said the week before versus critically analyze what was said. That's a level that I think we as educators and and grandparents um, fall short. How, where do we Where do we go with that? Well, you know, it's it's a controversial subject. I uh, uh, I was asked recently to speak uh, at my alma mater at, at Dartmouth at our, one of our reunions, which will be coming up this summer. Three classes get together, and I'll be talking about the book and particularly critical thinking. Uh, but there is a discussion there of how far I mean, how controversial this is, even in a yeah. major academic setting, because of the contrast between critical thinking and what we're talking about today, which are the the biases, the, yeah. the teams, the uh, the concepts that uh, we should not employ our critical thinking in, at all in challenging our place in the universe, how we relate to each other because of this broad set of uh, religious beliefs that are shared by people throughout the world, although they have yeah. different names for them. Um, and so I, I found it rather interesting to see that discussion take place at a major institution, can we actually have a discussion about whether critical thinking is a good thing? May I advocate for critical thinking? And we'll see where it comes out. I'm sure I will speak there, but I'm not sure how prominent the forum will be and uh, uh, whether there'll be a pastor or a minister who would like to, you know, sort of uh, have, a, have a discussion, a friendly yeah. discussion about it. And uh, so I, I do think it's a, it's a live issue and it's not one where you can just sort of assume that everybody embraces that, at right. least in, in terms of some of the most important issues that we, we all wrestle with, which yeah. is our own identity and in place in society and in the world. Leland, you mentioned uh, your book several times, and I want to turn to it because I think you use in several places examples of where investment analysts, investment bankers, whatever title we want to put them on, maybe operate on their own set of assumptions about, you talked about the hedge fund, for example, and the ability to beat the market. Give us some examples from your experience on how we're, our stock market is structured to really set critical thinking to the side and behave based on tradition and assumptions. Well, I, I th think there's a, a maybe a difference between uh, how the 
free enterprise system in the stock market, you know, behaves um, or, you know, would behave in a more rational system and how it does. I think that's a, a problem that we're facing today because the system has been abused and critical thinking hasn't been applied enough. It's given a bad name to a system that otherwise would function a whole lot better. So I want to sort of start from that position. So, But people have, who are involved in this, in the industry, uh, and many that represent some of the most prominent and largest firms, have an incentive for you not to engage in criminal, pardon me, critical thinking. <laughs> they engage in criminal thinking. Uh, 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 yeah. Someone, There's someone, an unconscious bias. Uh, yes, ab- absolutely. Very subtle. Uh, very, very, very subtle, Dr. Freud. Um, anyway, um, so if they can make more money by puffing up a person who doesn't really know anything much more than anybody else on Wall Street, but can pretend that he is and get you to avoid critically thinking about it and accept it, then uh, that's going to help them because then they can promote him or her. They can promote the products that he or she is presenting and make more, more, more profit. So if they can create a, a superstar out of nowhere, because there's no critical thinking, no one's analyzing this, let's put them to the test. What did they say? Not what did they say three times? What did they say every time? So we can analyze not the three that they cherry pick, but what they really said and really did, then we'll get a different result. Uh, and even, it wouldn't even take great critical thinking to get there. But there's this whole you know, abandonment of that. And, you know, one of my favorite examples, and it's, it's more extreme, and I cite it in the book, is the interaction between <coughs> baseball, uh, Len Dykstra, who was an all-star baseball player, led the Mets to the World Series championship, and uh, James Kramer, who the, has the biggest audience by far on cable financial, and Wall Street. Well, at one point, uh, Kramer teamed up with Len Dykstra, who he said was one of the best minds in Wall Street. And immediately, when they started selling a Dykstra newsletter, they sold in the first week like a million dollars worth of subscriptions. Now, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, in an interview while he was still playing, uh, about 15 years into his career, they said, Len, why are you such a good hitter? And he said, well, I'm really careful of my eyesight, and since I've been in baseball, I haven't read. <laughs> now, um, and th- yeah. well, we're, of- we're, f- we're fortunate he didn't, didn't just decide to run for the presidency. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> so I, I, I guess, you know, we shouldn't bother going to business school if this yeah. turns you into the, one of the greatest minds on Wall Street. Well, Fast forward, you know, a few, a couple of years, and Dykstra himself is in bankruptcy and in jail. And, but it, this didn't stop uh, Jim Cramer from endorsing him this way. It didn't stop Jim Cramer from being interviewed and said, what's your favorite one stock? And he named the stock, which proceeded to fall 50% in one year and 95% over two. And this is 15 years or more ago, and he's still the best watched person 
on cable finance. So you get these people have the incentive to mislead. They don't want you to think critically because if you did, you would say, my God, what's going on here? Yeah. When you talk about that, uh, what flashes before my mind is Theranos. (laughs) Indeed. Isn't that a perfect example of ignoring the facts? Absolutely. Well, it's it's the seems to me it's a a perfect example of of wishful thinking in every which way, yeah. including the most basic. Never mind, is their thing going to be the best? Are they going to get it to market in time? Are the economics going to work? But the wishful thinking, and that's all it can be. I can't think of any other explanation that a. 19-year-old college dropout can figure out what every PhD and university professor and every major drug company in the world hasn't been able to even come close to. Right. What, what I find interesting, though, in part as we talk about wishful thinking, is just how much we all seem to need that, you know, that it, that is part of our emotional makeup, that we have to have this in mind. And, uh, and I'm reminded, I just will share very quickly, of a conversation I had with my one of my children, with my fi- uh, a five-year-old. I've got four kids, and the last one sort of said to me when she was five and going to sleep, she was afraid of dying. And she brought up that topic and asked me what happens and that sort of thing. And most parents or grandparents face that at some stage. And, and I thought this is a moment where I can impart sort of wishful thinking to her, and I can talk about a a magic blanket, so you don't have to worry, honey, just go to sleep, you're covered with this blanket or pillow. If it were a different religion, it's the magic pillow. But obviously I'm using that as an example of you know, something you can in- create, of some mythology that does deal with the short-term issue. But instead I you know, said 12 words to her, and she has never brought up the subject mm. again, and it seemed very comfortable. And it always struck me as an example of how critical thinking actually can, if we try, address the areas that uh, have been dealt with in a more wishful concept, such as that there is immortality, don't worry, you're actually never going to die, or you will live forever, you know, with all of your friends, which is obviously the wishful thinking that is at the heart of most religious uh, uh, philosophies. And uh, so the 12 words were, and see if it works for you, it will be just the way it was before you were born. Yeah. And I've yet to meet somebody who says to me, well, who said to me, that doesn't do it for me. I'm still yeah. terrified. And maybe some of you will say it since we're being videoed here and it'll have an impact. But the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by our, our innate need yeah. to sort of deal with these things. And, it, um, and then we, we have this long history of dealing with them in a manner um, that incorporates mm-hmm. wishful thinking. Yeah. Pardon me, on the subject of, of, of you know, the wishful thinking and living forever, I stumbled across this statement that I'm going to quote in a, in a minute. And when I did, it's one of the times in my life I said, darn, why couldn't I have thought of it that way? It's so great. And everybody wants to live forever. And the assumption, Roy, as you were saying, there are assumptions that we all make when we say things. And the assumption is we're going to live forever. It's going to be, you know, the, this traditional concept of heaven, or it's going to be the best days of our lives. And they said, what if you were going to be living forever? You could not die no matter what. 
what? And so the first five minutes into that, you walked into the field, tripped, fell into the bottom of the well, and you couldn't get out forever. (laughs) Well, that's one way to look at it. (laughs) I was feeling pretty upbeat until just You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I bet if you looked up wishful thinking on, on, on some <laughs> Google dictionary, a synonym would be hope. And we don't, yeah. Yeah. we don't think hope is bad, right? But no. Well, I think the difference is the context in which we use it. Let's go to the audience questions because we've got some time and right. I trust that there will be quite a few. I, let me say one thing as gently as I can. Please ask a question, uh, because everybody else here may want to ask a question also. And the quicker they are, the more we can get in. So, May, may I interject one thing before we sure. do that? Yeah. I just want to do one huge thank you to an old buddy of mine in Leland's who really is responsible for pulling all this together. He introduced us. Uh, he suggested the whole concept uh, he also helped me figure out calculus when we were in college together years ago, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, although I never really figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, he is the, the head of uh, uh, Brea Capital here in San Francisco. He even went so far as to sponsor this thing along with his partner. So uh, I just wanted to say thanks to Steve Cutcliffe, yeah. who's over here, and, uh, and his... Uh, his colleagues, Bill and Dave and Bill, his partners who are, are here, just really wonderful of them to do it and to get us together. Yeah. Good. Good. And I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to Roy Eisenhart moderate a question uh, about uh, the power of critical thinking uh, with uh, Mr. Foss and Khan. And we're going to go to the questions. Thank you. Mr. Faust, this is particularly a question for you because you brought up statistics earlier, but I'd also be interested in the other gentleman's observations. I've often wondered about why people don't respond to statistics, and I see it as kind of two ways. Uh, First, the personal relationship with statistics, like don't like them, don't understand them, don't have the patience for them. And the second one is that perhaps people don't trust either the source of the statistics or the veracity of the statistics. So what do you think about why people don't respond to statistics? Well, I, I th- my thought would be it's a number of things. Number, first of all, I think many people are you know, uncomfortable with sort of math in general. That the, you know, everybody, everybody in the room here has a different sort of natural predisposition for it, and, and then they were exposed to different educational backgrounds. I, I certainly believe that if one has anything in the normal range, if they, you then study it, whether it's statistics or history or English or foreign language, you can get really good at it. You're not going to be the best in the world, but you're going to be good at it. But I think there's probably been a, a lack of, of that. So people feel you know a little uncomfortable with 
for the math aspects in general. And really understanding statistics, I think, takes a you know, kind of a, a next step up. It's not just simple high school, necessarily high school arithmetic, that or, or algebra even, that gets you a long way there. Um, but it's it's been putting it in in context uh you know what does statistics mean and the exposure to it so that when you hear something about whatever the unemployment rate or you hear something about a baseball statistic or you hear something about you know the development of artificial intelligence and the statistics that you can kind of move quickly from one to the other and i think that that's a real problem. Then we lay on top of it a, a, a couple of a couple of things. One that people, at, you know, what are the underlying statistics? Are they real or are they being manufactured? You know, how many? If someone says this is disease affects you know one person in a hundred, what does that mean? What's affect one person in a hundred? Right? And I think that's what you're going part of your question. So I think that's part of it. And then it gets worse because people try to use the statistics to support the position that they want to take. And a recent example, and I went for a week ago, I couldn't have told you what I'm about to, to tell you, but it was an example of a true statistic, but was put in to lead you to think something was a lot worse than it is. Okay, I just went to see the movie called Just Mercy. And I liked it a lot. It's about, it's the story of Brian Stevenson, who was a Harvard-educated African-American lawyer who goes back to the South to, to start a justice program to get uh, people released from death row who didn't commit the crimes. And it dramatizes one particular story among others. But at the end of the movie, it says, um, for every person in America who is executed, um, for me, for every nine people who are executed, one is released from death row because he was wrongfully committed. Now, the first reaction is, oh my God, we're wrongfully committing you know, 10% of the people, right? One person is exonerated for every nine who are executed. But that's not what's really going on here. We don't execute very many people. I didn't know the number, so I looked it up. Last year in the United States, 22 people were executed. So if it were one in nine, that meant uh, two and a half people last year on average were exonerated from death row. I then looked up how many people are on death row, 2,625 approximately. So it goes from one in 10 to one in 1,000. So again, since it's played with, it then gives the use of statistics you know, a bad name. And so I think that's part of it. I would only add one quick thought, which is I think most of us are wired to emotionally connect with something and to want to hear stories and to put things in a context, a narrative. And I think it's difficult for the vast majority of us to relate emotionally to statistics and to sort of picture that. Um, I think, for example, of the efforts we make, uh, I'm on an advisory board of a group called First Move, which has taught chess to 1.5 million second and third graders in the U.S. I do it through video. And actually, Wendy Fisher's here, who is the chair of that and uh, executive president of it. And uh, this not-for-profit tries to bring to life chess, you know, with color, with characters, 
so that children, you know, ages, you know, five to ten, have a uh, have something they can relate to. It was not quite as cold. So I think that's also part of the uh, the reason it's difficult. <laughs> to go back to Plato for just one second, you know, he he had this crazy idea besides the cave, of in order to prepare people to be political leaders, that they had to study math for twenty years, because it would make them critical yeah. thinkers. They make he, them think rationally. You know? He was ahead of their time. Yeah. yeah. Mm, thank you. Uh, my question is around uh, measurement. I mean, I know like any other skill. Uh, if we are somehow able to measure uh, the critical thinking, we'll be able to manage it and grow it and make it better. Like in this room, how can we put a number and say, okay, at this level, the critical thinking is here. Now it is here. Uh, the, like any other 21st century skills, uh, critical thinking is one of them. Angela Duckworth came up with a book, uh, Grit, in which the, she came up with something called Grit Scale. So in your research, have you come across anything how we can really put some ballpark number on it numerically and then over a period of time see whether it is growing or is it just remaining there? After you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I was really hoping somebody would ask that question. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have a measuring device here and it has gone up during the meeting today. Everybody is thinking much more critically. Um, you know, it's very difficult obviously to measure something like that because the first thing is what what is critical thinking Roy has raised that there are all sorts of measures of that people debate IQ tests whatever you know all sorts of measures in the chess context you can go online and and see how well you do and and watch your critical thinking skills diminish as you have a beer or uh, or as you get more tired at night you actually can see your scores dropping and so that's one small indication anyway of the physicality of critical thinking. But as I mentioned, it's such a controversial subject in terms of even, ha even having critical thinking in schools. I mentioned one situation, but you know, I'm trying to get it into school districts as an area to focus on. And again, it, it's highly controversial because of the, the parenting aspects that come up and whether you're, get, you're crossing over too much into areas where uh, people feel the critical thinking skills should not be utilized. So I, I don't think it's an area um, where we really have measurement yet. I think we're really at the sort of the forefront of that right now, and um, at least we're trying to yeah. push it forward. There was an article in the New York Times today that was very interesting on point comparing history books across the nation and the different ways they presented American history depending on the uh, particular state that it happened to be from. It's really goes to the heart of what we're talking about here, about uh, our assumption as to what the facts are. And you may co reach completely the wrong conclusion through totally appropriate critical thinking if your facts are manipulated on you. So, Do you think there's a parental obligation to teaching one's children or offspring um, critical thinking? And the reason I use the word offspring is unlike most other animals, we stay with our parents or we continue to learn from our parents for as long as they're alive, as opposed to many other animals where it might be a few days to a few weeks. Well, it may surprise you to know that, that I do see it that way, yes. Uh, it's why I spent 40 years writing this book and uh, gave it all to the Dawkins Foundation. Uh, 
I do think that parents at least should give thought to the question of whether they want to raise their children to be critical thinkers or whether they would prefer them to be part of a a culture of a mythology that basically uh, precludes their embracing that, uh, as I mentioned, in terms of their their view of other people, their view of themselves, their communities. Um, But ultimately, um, you know, I love parenting and I suspect that every parent wants the best for their kids and they make the decision that they think is in their best interest. And I certainly understand that in certain parts of the world and even in certain parts of our country that uh, going too far and embracing critical thinking can be an uncomfortable thing to do in a specific community. In some places, it can be a dangerous thing to do. Certainly, if you start questioning the authority of an individual who purports to speak on behalf of a deity, uh, you'll be killed in some parts of the world. And so uh, uh, I encourage people, you know, as I wrote in the book, to be realistic about the environment they're in. And, uh, you know, we certainly don't need any uh, atheistic or agnostic martyrs. And so uh, you have to be uh, be thoughtful in terms of how far you can go with that. But generally, I think teaching your children not to be biased, not to uh, think better of themselves and to be more humble as human beings, to work together, is uh, is a very good parenting aspect there that I do advocate. Um, when you, sorry, did you have something else to add? Do when you uh, <laughs> confront an issue uh, to which you want to apply critical thinking, are there a series of questions or investigations that you, know, you ask yourself or you want to undertake? You want to do it? I have an answer, but you go ahead. <laughs> well, I, well, I think it depends on, you know, what, you know, what I'm doing, I, I don't have a, a, a checklist for trying to you know, evaluate necessarily what, what, who I'm going to vote for, you know, which of the you know, t- 10 candidates I'm going to vote for. There's no checklist. I have, I'm, I'm much more organized and methodical if I'm you know, evaluating an investment to recommend to a, to a client. And I, I want to be really careful here, and I've got a certain you know, series of questions and things I investigate and want to see before it would allow a client to invest in something. So I think how sort of how rigid and formulaic uh, it, it is sort of de- depends on the, on the situation. I mean, back to the question of, about raising your children. Um, fortunately, I'm, I'm beyond the have to worry about who the two of them marry because they both married my view very nicely. But I would want them to apply some critical thinking to that. It's not going to be a Ill, completely intellectual process, but I would want them to apply some intellectual process to that. And I think they did. Uh, but uh, so, but that's a different standard than I apply to, to you know, determining you know, who, you know, how I'm going to invest a client's money. I would I would answer from a different angle, uh, and uh, obviously we we come from different worlds and think in in some different ways about these issues. Uh, I the first thing that I would think of is uh, trying to be sure that I'm not <clears throat> making decisions um, that are unprincipled. So I I first think in terms of trying to be uh, independent minded as I'm trying to apply critical thinking to an issue, <clears throat> and so I um, I always like to distinguish. Um, between loyalty and principle, and I always uh, put principle at a far higher level. I, I view 
sort of the idea of making decisions based on loyalty as really the uh, what I learned in Russia by being there during the Putin years as well as the hallmark of sort of a non-critical thinking and of sort of a totalitarian type of mindset. Um, so that's one one trick I use for myself is just to think of the principles I want to use. And second, uh, I often keep in mind the, uh, it's hard to do, but uh, uh, one of the, the people who was nice enough to write a, uh, a blurb for the book on the cover was, uh, was Soros. And I uh, learned from him something that uh, I find useful, which is to, to try to disprove my own theories. And uh, it's a very rare skill, I think, to be able to do that on a consistent basis, <clears throat> sort of as you're, you know, to apply it in the stock context. If you're thinking of buying Apple, well, spend some time trying to demonstrate and having people try to demonstrate to you why that's a bad idea, to take a simple example. And most of us, you know, have obviously a bias towards our decision rather, you know, rather than against. And uh, so th that's another way, I think, to be sure you're applying critical thinking. Yeah. Here's a microphone. So um, I spent 38 <coughs> years working in a hospital that's part of a large HMO here in the California. And one of my concerns in the 90s was group meetings where, you know, any kind of critical thinking comes in conflict with the ego personality of the people that are the leaders. And, um, and they usually always went out. And then I discovered this electronic technology called interactive keypad technology, where each person could provide some input at various points in the meeting. Um, and they totally rejected it because um, they didn't like the idea of having an anonymous input mm -hmm. and losing part of their control. And so it all comes down to if the leadership doesn't embrace a desire for it, then you're lost. Yeah, I would only comment that one of the reasons I started the book when I was, you know, in high school or college, I didn't know I was writing a book, but, but it was because of that issue. My just general negative reaction towards the idea of authority being unchallengeable. And obviously, it, it, I saw it mainly in the religious context. Uh, I find that a very frightening thing, sort of a, a, sort of a totalitarian concept that is even stronger than that which we see in nation-state context. So I, uh, I agree. It's it's a it's part of uh, sort of the hierarchical structure that <clears throat> that I do think is problematic as well. Yeah, the the um, concept of authoritarian <laughs> leadership suppressing critical thinking. It's not that critical thinking becomes wrong, just n not cool to do it. And is It's very interesting you raise the hospital in the context of the surgical suite where the surgeons were always so in charge that if somebody saw a mistake, they were afraid to say something, and that culture is really being addressed. You make a very good point. Um, it's it's uh, why authoritarians made both women and slaves never think critically you know i mean you don't educate them you don't try to teach them because they they'll figure out everything real quickly right <clears throat> i'm gonna raise kind of an elephant that i see in the room it's a very polite <clears throat> conversation it's very rational but at the same time i feel there's a whole devaluing of critical thinking by our current government and we are 
right this minute, for example, trying to figure out what happened in Iran. What's the reasoning? What's, and, and I feel there's a real negative uh, value to critical thinking about anything that's going on. So I feel that's the world we live in right now. And I, without taking a side per se, I, I'm not here to bash a particular anything, but I'm really struggling because I was a researcher and a scientist, and I am struggling with a world that I feel devalues facts, devalues critical thinking. And I would like to hear any comments that you might have on that situation. I think that's a good wrap-up question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll stick my nose out first, and then I can let my two co-panelists have the last word. It seems to me that as the <coughs> politics <coughs> has become more, more and more polarized, that then the critical thinking becomes less and less because it's just you got to line up with your team, and if you have to line up with your team, then we're not thinking critically. Some philosophy, for lack of a better word, or point of view dominates this group, some dominates that, everybody jump on board. And, and, and I think a, what we might think is a, a, knock, a more innocuous example of that that I discussed with someone recently uh, was the space program. And when the space program started in the 50s and, and into the 60s, um, who supported the space program was across party lines. There were lots of Democrats on both sides. There were lots of Republicans. So they were making their decision, whether it was critically thinking or not or something other bias. But they were at least weighing factors by the, in determining which side they're on in the space program. Now it's highly partisan. And yeah, so I asked this gentleman who you know works in the space program, I said, well, you know, are we really going to have people... Americans back on the moon in the next five years or so. He said, it depends who wins the election. So if Trump wins, we probably will. And if he loses, we probably won't. So there you go. Yeah, I would, I would only add, you know, first, thank you for the question. I want to thank also all of you <clears throat> for taking time this evening to come and, and missing the important, I guess, to most Americans, football game this evening. Yeah. Um, the... Um, uh, you know, the way, the way I think of it is, you, you know, if, if you're living in a culture or in a world where uh, people are trained to sort of believe in, in invisible friends and to have meaning supernatural beings and to have uh, and you're trained during your life basically to follow the orders of people who speak for these deities and to follow authority figures blindly, unquestioning uh, their authority and unquestioning of their uh, rationality of, and, and of their statements, uh, I, I think it's a natural thing that that over time bleeds into politics where uh, people are basically of the view that, well, this person is part of my, my team and does that. So I don't see it as an, as an equal issue. Uh, and I know it's a controversial subject and we're speaking on a you know, recorded thing, and so my friends in the red states will hear it, but I, I don't think that it's uh, 
a situation where you have an equal amount of lack of critical thinking in both. I, I think that places in the world where you have more training to suspend your critical thinking uh, have an easier time going along with an authoritarian figure. Uh, and uh, I think that's where we are. Well, thank you, everyone, and thank you to our two experts um, for this evening, and we thank you for this, and I'm supposed to... <laughs> thank you all. Thank you. <laughs> this is the official sound. <laughs> Everybody. One, one last uh, comment that I, I thought I'd, I'd make, because it's interesting that people talk about uh, that there was, you know, sort of less partisanship in the 60s. One of the ideas that we had was a labeling of racial hatred as discriminatory. That's discrimination. It was in the late 60s, early 70s. Discrimination is critical thinking. That's what it is. And racial hatred is something totally different. If you're a critical thinker, you realize color, skin, color of a person's skin has nothing to do with a large range of issues. And if you're not, you don't notice that. So we labeled an emotional problem with it being critical thinking, and we were against it, and I think that that has caused us to not like critical yeah. thinking ever since. It keeps yeah. going down. I, I think it has affected it. Um, so it's very interesting because that was an accident in a way. That wasn't an intent by anybody. So uh, things have consequences if we don't think critically enough about what we're doing. But we don't have to be perfect because that's pretty obvious we're not going yeah. to, right? <laughs> uh, just a question for yeah. you, George. Do we want to let people know that if the, the books are signed, but right. if they want anything more inscribed... Oh. Such as the Ten Commandments or something. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll add that in happily for you. Which Ten Commandments? Our Ten Step Program? I'll take those. Okay. And thank you all very much for coming. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, right. Thank you. Did you go to the